Hello, I'm Helen Luer. And I'm Louise Fordham. And we're special projects editors at PEI Media in London. This edition of the Spotlight podcast is pretty special for us as we've been working very hard in the last few months on launching PEI Media's inaugural Women in Private Markets reports, which we finally got published on July the 1st and which also showcases the 60 women of influence working across the asset classes, including private equity, private real estate, venture capital, private debt and infrastructure. And so we thought it's also high time we bring together some of PEI's talented female editors and reporters to discuss the big themes emerging from their coverage of gender equality and diversity in the alternative asset sector. We're delighted to be joined by Perry editor Evelyn Lee, Private Equity International Senior Reporter, Kamala Mendoza, and Infrastructure Investor Editor, Clive P. Gauntis. So welcome, ladies. You've all been covering your respective markets now for quite a number of years. So I guess the best place to, to kick off the discussion is to ask each of you, how has the conversation around gender equality and diversity generally changed in the time you've been reporting on the private markets? Carmela, if we, if we kick off with you. Sure, Helen. Um, well, DEI has certainly been a hot topic in, in private equity and, and more so in the last two years. I think that's been spurred by the pandemic and racial justice movement in the U.S. And that's added urgency to the issue. So we have written stories about firms doubling down on, on gender and, and racially diverse representation you know, within their investment teams and new recruits as well as companies that they own. So affiliate title, private funds, uh, CFO had a cover story in March about Blackstone, KKR and Carlyle's DEI efforts. So just to provide some figures, Blackstone's latest analyst class is 44% racially diverse now compared to 2015. And that's also 45% female versus 25% five years prior. And then Carlyle also has uh, some 49% of investment professionals or female black or Latinx. KKR as well, you know, some 80% of its companies had at least two board directors with diverse backgrounds. They set that goal several years ago and they've achieved it. In March, uh, I'm just going to name a few more uh, stories that we've covered. Uh, a new private markets or affiliate title as well reported that Partners Group has actually created a special budget to meet its hiring target for female senior executives. And LPs are also, of course, driving change. But I guess we'll talk about investors later on. Calliope, what about you? So I, I was thinking about this, and I would say that since I started covering infrastructure in 2013, there's definitely more talk and more awareness around the issue of gender diversity, and I guess diversity more broadly. And I think that the really big turning point was in 2017 with the uh, Me Too movement. I think that's when really things took off in that regard. But I have to say that it's kind of a mixed bag in that, yes, awareness is, is growing in this respect and, you know, you, you hear more programs and more commitments being announced by various firms. But when you scratch a little bit beneath the surface or you, you try to, to find out more information, there's still a lack of transparency. And I think one area where progress is really lacking is in terms of other types of diversity, so beyond gender. And I have found that, especially in Europe and well, I can speak for Europe, but especially in Europe, the tendency is to, when you talk about diversity, the default is gender. And I think the U.S. is better in that regard. 
But having said that, it's interesting that the Lenin organization and McKinsey in their latest Women in the Workplace report for 2020 stressed that black women in particular have the worst work experience. And they base that on these reports that they started doing since 2015. So that's just really not acceptable. And I'm not sure how you make improvements on that. And Evelyn, what's the view in real estate? So there's a reference point I like to point to. In 2012, there was an industry veteran by the name of Nori Gerard-Leitz. She came out with a white paper called Cloistered in the Pink Ghetto. And this paper focused on women, not just in real estate, but also private equity and venture capital. And it looked at how women generally were relegated to this so-called pink ghetto. So, you know, support functions like marketing, investor relations, or back office roles like HR and accounting. Most of women were not in transactions and therefore didn't have much of an impact on the direction of the business. I think you can contrast that today. There's a big difference. You're seeing a lot more women, not only in investments, but in key decision-making roles like global head of real estate or C-suite level positions. But I think if you ask a lot of women in the industry, they would say this change has been a long time coming. Um, and while the pace of change has accelerated in the past couple of years, they, we still have a long way to go in terms of achieving you know, gender, more gender equality and, and greater diversity overall. Yeah, so certainly over the last year or two in particular, there's been a lot of uh, well-meaning rhetoric from both GPs and LPs alike on this issue. What extent do you think they're actually taking meaningful action on this? Perhaps we could go to you first, Evelyn. One particular firm in real estate made a lot of headlines last year, Bensel Green Oak. They're one of the largest private real estate managers. They came out and set an aggressive target for hiring. So two thirds of new hires would be women or visible minorities. And you fast forward to this year, they've already achieved or actually exceeded that target. They've made about 95 hires in 2021. 80% of them have been women and minorities. And um, in addition to that, they've also increased female representation among the senior leadership from 19% to 26%. So, and that's been done through a combination of promotions and hires. It's worth noting that increase in female representation in the senior level has also been on the investment management side as opposed to the corporate side. So, you know, really where there's, they're making an impact as opposed to you know, back office. There are some other examples like Naveen Real Estate. They have specific targets when it comes to hiring uh, recruitment, which is really interesting. So they require that all their slates of candidates for all open positions, um, there be at least one minority candidate, one female candidate, and the same for interviewers. So there has to be at least one interviewer who's female, one interviewer who is minority. And you've seen tangible results for Naveen Real Estate as a result of these targets. One statistic they shared with me was that you know 60% of their hiring last year was women. So they're seeing um, already the positive impact of target setting. However, I would say that firms that have set you know concrete, measurable targets and taken actions you know like that that are measurable like this are still the exception rather than the norm. There aren't a whole lot of examples. I'm pointing to maybe some of the few success stories that we've seen so far. It's still early days. 
And Clive, are you seeing any concrete examples of action in the infrastructure section? Yes, actually, we had done a roundtable a couple of years ago, and you know we had sponsors from Partners Group and um, AMP Capital and Anton Infrastructure Partners, and they each um, spoke about specific programs and, and measures they're taking within their organizations, including things like certain types of leave. Let's say, for example, maternity leave. They would also have paternity leave because, you know. Allowing the spouses of, of the women having children is what enables them to also be able to take time off. They're also introducing mentoring programs. I definitely think that, you know, it's not just a matter of paying lip service to the topic. I think that firms are indeed taking action to, to address these issues. I think it just it takes some time, but I think it will continue to go in this direction first because it starts from, in my opinion, public awareness which then trickles down to the members of pension funds or, you know, various LPs, and then the LPs in turn applying pressure to the GPs. And Carmela, how meaningful have the efforts been in private equity? Uh, I think for, for PE as well, I'd like to answer this question just focusing on the LP side of things and, and maybe share an example. When we chatted with Chicago Teachers Pension Fund, their CIO, Angela Miller, May about two months ago, she was very passionate about it and the fund's commitment to diversity and inclusion. So under her leadership, the in- increase in the investment uh, in assets and managers owned by minorities, women, and persons with disabilities that's grown from 33 to 48% of the overall portfolio. And she said they were very serious about it there because DEI is driven by their members. So they want to see their money invested by people that are reflective of them. And similarly, when we spoke to Cambridge Associates, I think the story as well is in our Women in Private Market Special Report. They noted that it isn't just a, a data exercise. They're really seeing intentionality there and LPs and GPs really care about it. So I guess I'm thinking about it more on the positive side of things and what, what's happening there, what, what movement is happening. For example, around setting the definition of what diversity is, it's not something that they just hash out in one meeting. It's a drawn out process and it takes time. You know, diversity can mean many things to different people, especially on a type of LP, uh, what their mission is. And then on uh, the emerging manager side of things, one interesting thing that we've covered this year is TPG Next, in which it launched a seeding platform that focuses on diverse talent. So they provide working capital. And they also provide seed capital for diverse-led businesses that struggle to, to raise money. So these are all very positive things in, in terms of you know, LP and GP uh, initiatives. Sorry, I just want to jump in there and just add to what Carmela said about Chicago teachers. I think Chicago teachers is really an outstanding example. I don't remember exactly when this was, but it was the CIO, Angela Mouimet, who said that they passed on to big name infrastructure fund managers and opted not to invest with them and specifically cited lack of progress in terms of diversity in the workplace. So she is very passionate about the issue, but I don't think we have too many examples of that, I have to say. Yeah. So you mentioned Chicago teachers there as a really outstanding example. More generally, how do you think LPs are driving the sector's progress on gender equity and diversity? What have you been hearing um, from the LPs you've been talking to when you've been reporting? Carmela, should we come to you first? We interestingly we had like a women in private markets, you know, networking day. Um, I think it was. In, in May, and there were a few LPs there in the panel that I moderated. And this, this one line, you know, stuck with me, uh, this UK pension fund said, 
as LPs, we can nag, you know, we can continue to ask our fund managers, uh, you know, when are you going to get more women on your boards or more women in senior leadership positions? So, so we can state, uh, you know, our expectations and continuously nag, you know, our fund managers. That's, I think, an interesting soundbite from that panel. But I guess what Calliope is saying as well, you know, how many women-led GPs are actually assessed by LPs every year? Not a lot, right? There's not a lot of women-led firms that are coming into their inboxes and in being assessed by, by LPs. So there's still a lot of things that need to be done there. But LPs are cognizant of this. And increasingly, if they are having an investor base, for example, DC pensions coming into private equity, if they have an investor base that's younger and more cognizant of these points, then they will ask for representation and more diversity in the funds that they back as well as in their investment companies. And Evelyn, are you seeing a similar situation in real estate? Yeah, we, we have seen some types of requirements. There are some investors that are taking a harder stance. You know, Chicago Teachers is one that has, you know, been very public about supporting diverse managers. There are others, I know, Norges Bank that oversees, you know, Norway's sovereign wealth fund. They've put out a requirement that for their portfolio companies, there has to be, I think, two women on boards. I think some of the U.S. pension funds have similar requirements. There's other investors that maybe don't have those kind of requirements, but are still asking for more disclosures of diversity-related data from their managers. I think actions like this do help to hold managers more accountable. You know, another thing that investors have done is they aren't diverse already. I think some are like uh, Chicago teachers, but if they aren't diverse already, they're kind of trying to lead by example and diversifying their own teams. So you've seen recently some of them hire female CEOs or hiring, you know, or promoting female heads of real assets or real estate to make sure that they are diverse. And then managers kind of see this and feel like, well, they need to better reflect among their own teams, what their investors are. I mean, to Carmelo's point earlier, just, you know, reflecting what their, the makeup of their investors and making sure that's something that's in the makeup of their own teams. In real estate, I mean, I think there's this general acknowledgement that diversity of thought produces better investment outcomes. And I think if you are looking at a potential investment, you want to have a, as comprehensive an assessment of that investment as possible. And so you do that when you have diverse viewpoints on your team. And in terms of real estate, this is particularly important because real estate is such a people-oriented business. You know, you have to think about the impact of your investments on people. That includes not just your tenants, but also the communities in where you're building or owning your assets. Um, and in infrastructure, Calliope, are LPs putting pressure on fund managers on this issue? Yes, yes, I think they are. And actually, I think on this issue of diversity, I think you can kind of compare it to what's going on with climate change. You know, we've often heard that ESG uh, more broadly started out or used to be more of a box ticking exercise, but that has slowly changed and it's gotten more substantial and with much more detailed questions and then people really caring about it and not just going through the motion. So I think it's the same with diversity. 
Okay, um, we've touched on this a little bit already, but the lack of women in senior client-facing roles is an issue that really stood out in the Women in Private Markets report, the content that we produced in those reports. You know, according to a recent diversity and inclusion survey from the British Private Equity and Venture Capital Association in Level 20, women make up 38% of the private equity and venture capital workforce. And that drops down to 20% in investment teams. Female representation also declines as seniority increases. Only 10% of senior investment roles, for example, are held by women. Meanwhile, women from minority ethnic backgrounds hold just 3% of senior roles across the private equity and venture capital firms that were surveyed. Black women hold only 1% of senior roles. So, Evelyn Lee, I really want to come to you on this one first as to why it's challenging, you know, getting women into these senior level roles, you know, the C-suite level roles, for example. Um, You know, you've just covered this in a big cover story for PERE this month, the search for the female CEO. So I'm sure you're hearing lots of interesting conversations about this. Yeah, no, for sure. I think the biggest challenge for why there aren't a lot of women at the senior level is, you know, there just aren't a lot of women in the industry. You know, you cited representation of women in PE and in a venture capital. It's probably pretty similar. I think it's about 40% for women based on a diversity and inclusion survey that the industry association NAREAM did with executive search firm uh, Ferguson Partners. They surveyed uh, their members, which are North American real estate investment managers, but just keep in mind, a lot of these are global managers too. So they are looking at their wider workforce and yeah, you see that seniority as they go up in seniority, the percentage of women drops, I think 50% women executive management, there's 30% in senior level, 40% mid-level. So, you know, if you want to recruit more women at the leadership level, you need to have a strong pipeline of women at all the levels of organization, but that overall pipeline of talent is pretty lacking. And many groups have acknowledged that they haven't done a great job of attracting you know, women at the entry level and then retaining them at the mid-level and beyond. You know, some of them have set up programs to address this, whether that's mentorship, kind of leadership-focused type programs, but that's a big challenge. And meanwhile, you know, you're seeing really intense competition for talented senior women because there aren't that many of them. But, you know, there's many groups that are trying to diversify their teams and are, you know, looking for more senior women. The recruiters that I interviewed for the cover story said their clients were requesting candidate slates that were often in 50% women. And in some cases, they were requesting 100% female candidates. But you're having to recruit from a candidate pool that's overall about 20% female So there's a big mismatch between supply and demand. It's very difficult to reconcile those numbers. And Calliope, are you seeing similar trends and having similar discussions in infrastructure? Yes, and actually, I just wanted to add a little bit to some of the things that Evelyn said. And going back to the Lean In and McKinsey report that I mentioned before, um, they actually provide a sort of a breakdown for asset management and institutional investors specifically. And you see it clearly... So at the entry level, 43%, and we're talking about the U.S. now, 43% are women. And then as you go up the corporate ladder, let's say at the VP level, it's 28%. And at the C-suite level, it's 19%. One of the main reasons for that is something they call the broken rung, 
which is, it just seems to be not enough women pass from entry level to the managerial level to then progress onto the more senior levels. So yes, it's, it's a similar situation for infrastructure as well. And Carmela on private equity? Unfortunately, very much the same. There's a report called uh, Women in Alternatives. I think women just make up 9.9% of partners in the PE industry and 6.4% of, of managing partners. Our sister title buyouts had a story on this in March, an excellent piece, just really tackling and then exploring why there aren't enough women in deal teams. And there are many reasons behind it, but I think two important things stand out. One is, you know, like visibility and representation, right? I mean, as Evelyn said, a lot of firms, they have that pipeline now, but if there is no pipeline of diverse talent, I, I guess then there won't be any senior leaders there, female senior le leaders in investment teams. So another thing also is, I guess, more flexibility in terms of the work-life balance. I think this is something that article also explored. And so if companies are able to support senior leaders, their investment professionals who are maybe taking time off to spend time with their families and bringing them back on again and making sure that everything's in place. And I guess there won't be a big adjustment or a big setback in, in their careers. Can I just add something? Sorry. Um, but I do have to say that in recent years, we are seeing more women uh, breaking out from main firms, major firms and creating their own, which as far as I can remember, in 2013-2015, uh, you weren't seeing much of that. And actually, just even looking at the 10 women of influence and in infrastructure from our inaugural report, you know, we have Elena Savostyanova, who's a co-founder of Ember Infrastructure, and Kate Campbell, who in 2019 founded Astrid Advisors. And that's just, you know, a couple of examples. And I think we've been seeing a lot more of that in the last two years, I would say. In the conversation so far, the word mentorship has cropped up a couple of times. And when we were putting together the Women in Private Markets reports and the Women of Influence in Private Markets list, kind of the importance of mentorship schemes was really apparent. Um, so I was wondering if any of you are hearing that in the conversations you're having around D and I in the industry and whether or not you think mentorship schemes are going to play an important role in helping to get more women up that ladder um, and across the broken rungs that um, Calliope mentioned. I've definitely heard from firms who are um, setting up mentorship programs. And I do think that, yes, they, they will play an important role. But I think of it more as like, let's say, a first step or starting point to help improve the situation and specifically to what we're discussing. But I think what what's more important is to manage to adopt or implement a culture that's firm wide so that it, it goes beyond, you know, having a structured program where, you know, the aim is to do this, but where it just becomes like second nature for the firm, let's say. But absolutely, it is a place to start. And, and I do think for that reason that it is important. Evelyn, are you hearing much about mentoring schemes in the private equity real estate sector? Yeah, so going back to my earlier point about the lack of senior women and this lack of a pipeline, that's exactly what some groups are doing to help to create that pipeline that they maybe are lacking right now and to ensure that they have female talent at all levels that they hope eventually will rise to the senior levels. I can mention a couple of groups. Um, last year, AXA Group, the French insurance company, they launched a mentorship program called SHAPE. And that was dedicated to young female talent. 
to help them develop professionally and to be more effective communicators. And we've talked about Partners Group. They established a coaching program that's actually targeted toward mid-level professionals and people who have been identified as promising future you know, potential leaders at the organization, similarly to help them develop and hopefully ascend to more senior levels. I do think mentorship can be helpful, providing you know, some guidance and structure that maybe women otherwise may not have. When I've interviewed, you know, some of the senior women for my cover story and you know, other conversations, you know, they talked about having great mentors. And even if that wasn't done necessarily in a formal mentorship program, like, you know, there's more of those available today. They did credit that they had mentors and it didn't seem like it was necessarily a huge challenge for them to find them. I think it can help some women, but to me, the bigger challenge when it comes to women's ability to ascend to the senior levels is probably less about mentorship than being a working mother, because that is a challenge that I've heard from many women that I interviewed. You know, you see women that are cutting back on hours, moving to less demanding roles, or leaving the industry altogether once they have children. I think what programs, maybe yeah, more on a more holistic level, like Haliopi was talking about, you know, parental support programs, you know, that are going to assist parents um, when they come back to work after parental leave, giving them more flexibility, you know, additional assistance where needed. I think that is actually probably, if not as important, not as important, more important than mentorship. I think it helps some people, but some people are able to find mentors anyway. And, you know, some of the successful women I did, you know, I spoke to, that's doesn't seem like it was an issue for them. The bigger issue for them and others is really being a, a working parent and being in a very high powered, demanding role and how you balance those. So I think there's all kinds of other support that women need to ensure that they you know, to keep climbing up the ranks. Can I just add one more thing before what I was saying about having a company-wide culture and this is something that I've heard from many people in our industry say that you know it's really important to have the support from the top. It has to come from the top levels, and I think that's really important. So just wanted to add to that. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. That's something that I wanted to highlight as well. And just broadening out our discussion of diversity and inclusion to LGBT plus inclusion. In very timely today, we published a story on PEI about this and what firms are doing to, to help drive that. Um, there was one thing that was pointed out by one of the co-heads of the LGBT plus organizations in the firms that we spoke to, he said it's having your senior leadership really endorse and speak genuinely about the need for, in, in their case, LGBT plus folks to feel comfortable, safe and supported. So, for example, he mentioned like someone like the head of PE who was mentioning pride activities in their Monday morning meetings and showing pictures of events or putting a pride sticker, you know, those are all uh, powerful signals from the very top of the house that the network is valued and that the mission is important. Thank you, everyone. So I think it's fair to say there's lots of work to be done in the um, respective asset classes on this still. Um, but I'd just like to wrap up perhaps on a more kind of personal note. We were talking about um, mentorship there and also role modelling as well, which is obviously very important in this industry. Um, what's everyone's own experience of these elements in their careers? Um, Clivey? Sure. For me, I guess because of when I started out in my career, that's a few decades now ago, <laughs> 
you know, uh, mentoring in the workplace wasn't really something that was done, you know, and definitely not in a, in a formal setting or in a formal manner. So for me, I guess it would just be a matter of, you know, how I was influenced or supported by colleagues and by my direct reports, my superiors. And, you know, I was fortunate in that. And gender didn't play a role in that. You know, it could have been a, a male boss or, or a female boss. It was just more about the person than were male or female. So I can't really speak to, you know, formal mentorship programs because I just didn't have that opportunity. And um, Carmela, have you been part of any of these formal programs or has it been a more informal experience for you as well? Same as Calliope, I think if I were younger, actually looking back, I would have actively looked for a mentor. But uh, I was very lucky even prior to BEI to have, you know, editors and bosses, both male and female, who have been very supportive in giving feedback and really tracking my progress and growth um, over the years. So while I haven't had any, you know, formal like mentor in place, I, I do count the editors that I work with, especially also in PEI, as, as role models, right? I look up to them, one of them being Isabel Markham, female as well, of course. And so I really see her as someone who I admire and, and just really respect in terms of her coverage of the PE industry and, and just really focusing on what's important as well, um, both personally and professionally. And Evelyn, what's your experience been like? Yeah, same. I never participated in a formal mentorship program. I mean, I think that's probably still developing in a lot of places, including PEI. But yeah, I mean, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of talented journalists, both bosses and colleagues whom I've learned so much from. If I had a single one person out as a mentor and this person happens to be female, I would think of one particular editor-in-chief who taught me a lot about source development. Because to me, if you're a journalist, you're nothing without your sources. So she taught me about all the different ways that you engage with sources, how sources prefer to share information. It's not just by phone, it's, you know, you could do email in person. Some people will tell you things directly. Some people give you puzzles to solve in certain cases. She gave me a lot of guidance on that front. And I still follow a lot of her advice today, even more than 10 years later. So just want to give a shout out to Sharon Waters for being a great mentor, even though our working relationship never had that official label. Well, I think that's a great way to, to end this podcast. I think it's been a fascinating discussion. I think we'll all certainly be watching with interest as the sector continues its journey on equality, diversity and inclusion going forward. And, you know, I guess also monitoring you know, whether they, some of the imbalances that we're seeing in the sector data, whether they start to change meaningfully over time. So thank you very much, everyone. You've been listening to Louise Fordham and Helen Lua in conversation with Evelyn Lee, Calliope Gauntis and Carmela Mendoza. Thank you very much for tuning in.